Characters are one of those defining facets of RPGs that really stand out from other kinds of types of games. Playing a character is probably the biggest reason the genre exists at all. The characters we create are more than just a pile of numbers or a selection of abilities. They're a whole different type of creation. I'm Adam Blinkensop here with Sage Latora and another question. How do we build great characters? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question to tackle, um, especially with examples from particular games. Uh, I I ended up with a lot of things here, and as you mentioned in the intro, uh, this is kind of a uniquely RPG question. I, I think part of our our strength, hopefully, talking about stuff is that we do uh, branch out into video games and board games a lot, but uh, this one doesn't really apply in the same way. Yeah, there's a couple of really weird board games. Uh, stuff like uh, the old ambush war game where you create your squad kind of XCOM style. But none of it none of it has the same feel, and especially none of it is, like, enforced. Yeah. Like, in a role-playing game, your story is often just kind of a serious, legitimate part of your character itself. Um, but in, in ambush, if I want my... You know, second lieutenant to actually have an ongoing story. It's all up to me. There's nothing that's helping me uh, as far as the rules. And the character creation has nothing to do with that. It's like, how many bullets is he carrying and whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a few other examples. So I had a... This was going to be my bonus fourth point. Oh, but, we might um, as well start with it. Video games. Uh, I tried to think of video games that did anything close to RPG level character creation, and I couldn't really end up with any that felt like the same investment in the character. I mean, there's a few interesting things out there. There's um, Sunset Overdrive, which had uh, a completely mutable character. Um, all the things that typically video games kind of make you stick with, like a, a gender or anything like that, were completely mutable. Your character could change any way you wanted to the entire time. Um, Skyrim and Fallout as kind of the, the depths of the uncanny valley there. They're always aiming higher for for verisimilitude, and it just it, it doesn't work most of the time. There was an interesting uh, screenshot that I saw yesterday. Somebody took Skyrim, all the environments, and uh, took the textures off. And so you're just left with the, the like volumes of all these shapes, and it looks so much better. I would play that game. I wanted to see what the characters look like. But, uh, <laughs> well, I think, I think one of the crazy things about, about video games that shows how, how interesting role-playing games can be is that a lot of the time they will just punt and say, here's a big text box, go ahead and write your bio in there. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have any impact on anything. But you can do it and feel good about it. Yeah, I can't think of a single video game I've played where the character I've created... I've been particularly invested. Maybe I'm invested in things that happen to them later. There, there's plenty of video games. Sure, where sure. I created a character, and then you know my choices is Commander Shepard or whatever. Those I'm, I'm kind of invested in, but the background of that character, the things that I made to start with, I, I can't think of a single video game that actually did much with that for me. Mm -mm. Um, and then there's like the the WoW, uh, World of Warcraft, and Destiny kind of thing where your character. Sure, you can do a lot of customization, but it really comes down to a way of showing off what you've done in-game. Right. Um, somebody commented on Destiny 2 uh, not being able to bring over your gear, but being able to bring over your character. You know, well, I spent my entire game wearing a helmet. Uh, I, I don't care who's under that helmet. I want to bring the helmet with me. Totally. So... What's actual your number answers. one? Yeah, uh, totally. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, so my actual number one, um, I think this one is pretty fundamental to a lot of games is connection to other characters. Um, Sweet. But I think a particularly good example of this is actually where this bakes in earlier in character creation. Mm -hmm. So the the thing that I'm thinking of here is kind of like best friends or um, 
2016's Paranoia. Um, so the idea being in those games that part of how you end up with your stats is through interaction with the other uh, players slash kind of characters. So in mm-hmm. Best Friends, uh, which is a game of um, kind of uh, mean girls, basically, like uh, catty friends. Uh, there's a it tends to be a little female gendered because that's the media portrayal of it. But I've heard uh, I know of a great game that was um, male strippers, all the characters, uh, not not the players though. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but the the idea being that uh, during character creation for your stats, uh, the way you arrive at your stats is you, we ask everybody at the table who is more this thing than you. So like more beautiful, more smart than you. And everybody has to say who they think is more that than them. And the number of people who say that about you, that adds up to your stat. Um, So the the character creation is tied into the ties between the characters, not just in the kind of um, apocalypse world based... uh, I'm going to highlight your stat during the play, yeah. Yeah, well, in history, bonds, Mm -hmm. strings, it's a pretty common last step in kind of Powered by the Apocalypse character creation to say... Hook everybody together, yeah. Hook everybody together in some kind of past configuration. Um, And I I like that. It works. I've written a game that does that. It's fine. Uh, But it's really cool when those ties come in earlier. So in Paranoia, um, you have these whole big skill lists, and uh, the way you get your values in these different skills is you go around the table, starting at the GM's left, and somebody chooses one of those things to have a plus one in. And then the person to their left automatically gets a minus one in the same thing. And uh, you keep on going around the table. You can only choose things that you don't have a, a score in yet. And once you finish going around the table at minus one, or plus one slash minus one, you go around at plus two slash minus two. So if there's something that you really want to be good at, you're kind of gambling towards the end that nobody, you know, the person to your right won't have already taken that and blocked it out for you. Oh, man. Um, That's pretty awesome. It, it's really awesome because then it, it creates these you know things that you're good at. There's at least one person who's really going to need your help with those things. So that reminds me of Amber character creation. Do you know about the Amber RPG? I I know of it. I've never (laughs) played it, so tell me more. So Amber is a very... uh, The players are not friends in Amber. Um, And so you can do really crazy things in character creation, and you can do really crazy things with character sheets. So in the end, you don't know exactly what everybody's stats are. Oh, I have heard of this before. Okay, so there's the the gist with Amber, the starting Amber character creation is there's an auction for all the stats, and you're already like way more powerful than anybody who's not in the player character group. So the real question is just, are you beating another player character in this particular stat? So we'll do a big strength auction or whatever the stats are, and uh, the GM will just push it as hard as they can because you're spending all your points. And whoever wins the strength auction has the highest strength, and everybody knows that they're the strongest. But everybody else can buy points secretly mm-hmm. to bring them up to as close as they want to that winner of the auction. Nice. Um, and I think buying the points is more expensive than you get them in the auction or whatever. But so in the end, it's a totally diceless system. It just comes down to the GM will reference the secret stats and look at what you were actually doing in play and say, oh, this looks like it was basically a strength conflict. 
and neither of you were the highest in strength, so I will consult my secret stat and tell you who wins this contest. Oh, that's really cool. And it points to something that is in common across um, the main examples of this that I, that I pointed out. Uh-huh. Uh, Best Friends, Paranoia, Amber, um, they're all games that have a fair amount of player-to-player tension. Mm-hmm. Um, more so in Best Friends and Amber, but to some degree in Paranoia. It's, it's a oh. game of everybody's a traitor and you backstab them. It's just less serious about it. Sure. Um, but I couldn't find or think of uh, a whole lot of examples of this being used positively of um, a character-to-character defining stats early in the process kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, in a spotlighting my, kind of way. Yeah, my choices affect your stats, mm-hmm. but in a more positive way. I mean, in Best Friends, it is kind of positive, but to get that positive, you had to kind of do a negative. You say it, it sets up resentment because mm-hmm. you're having to say who is more, who you think is more these things than you. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is supposed to do. But. It's, it's supposed to do, yeah. It's great design for what it is. Uh, but I'm kind of curious now where this could go in a more positive direction. You know, if if we are the uh, band of adventurers who all kind of more or less get along and we wanted to have this kind of tying together of stats, how do you do that in a way that doesn't set up resentment? Um, I, I think there might be an opportunity for like a... Uh, who has taught you about this? Sure. Modify best friends just a little bit. You know, who uh, who is your mentor in this? Especially if we were doing maybe a, a young adventurers kind of thing, an adventurer's school kind of adventure, maybe a little Harry Potter, you know. Uh, who Who is your tutor in this, in potions or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, I th- it, there's some opportunities there, but I'm curious to see if somebody will take that idea and run with it more directly because I love the characters this creates. Uh, we did Paranoia at New Mexico a few months ago, um, and the by the time we had set everything up, it everybody was was itching to play. I think that's sure, the, the that's mark the, of good character creation. Totally, yeah. Um, it's it's this. The hard part about character creation is making it so that it's not a heads-down affair, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, since you led with, with this kind of thing, I'm going to lead with my similar similar entry, which is also connected to the group situation. But it's those games where, like, like Fate and Fiasco, where your connection to the group situation is almost your entire character. Like, in Fiasco, that's basically it. That's all you have to go on is... Uh, you and I run competing blockbusters, and you you and I do this. And that's the only reason that I even have a character, is because of those relationships. Mm-hmm. And in Fate, uh, in particular, there's a there's a space uh, fate, that, like Diaspora, yes. uh, where uh, this, is, this is my main link to Fate Core, uh, and I really liked it. Anyways, where... You are building these these connections to the people around the table, and that is directly affecting your stats, basically. Because the, the main way that you get your additional bonuses and all this kind of stuff is by triggering all these aspects on your character um, that just come straight out of that. And so, you know, that is certainly a way that you can do the Bond-style character creation, but have it much more directly related to what you can do. Although Fiasco, like talking about stats in Fiasco doesn't really <laughs> make sense, but fate, fate is a lot more close to that. Well, in Fiasco, it's still a, a major element driving play. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the things that you set up there, there's not a whole lot, and there really isn't pretty much any other set up to the situation other than those things you established. So mm-hmm. sure, they aren't stats and the tell you how many dice to roll or what bonus to add kind of sense, but they are 
the the most direct driver of play, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a, a pretty important aspect. Yeah, um, I mean, without them, without them, you have no game, right? Yeah, yeah. Fiasco without uh, that kind of setup is is pretty much nothing. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting example. Like that's it, it's easy to take for granted as um, uh, an element of character creation now that we tie all the characters together. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because games that I find that don't have that now, depending on the game, it can feel a little lacking. Um, I, I had this experience with Torchbearer. Uh, make, I, I love Torchbearer, but making characters and then sitting down to play, you even if everybody creates characters together, you have this interesting stuff, and then tying them all together into a group of people who are now together for this adventure mm-hmm. is... A little tougher than I expected, uh, because there isn't anything built in that does this kind of uh, setting up history. History, yeah, yeah. That's that's my my friend Ken just started playing role playing games basically this year, uh, and his big complaint about a lot of the games that we play, even ones that do a, a really light relationship connection, mm-hmm. is that it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of backstory. It feels like you show up, you know nothing. And really nothing that happened before right now even matters mm-hmm. very much. Um, and so I, you know, I'm going to need to play some of these, some of these more, more backstory-esque games. Like, he really liked Fiasco because this, the backstory is the only story that you have when you start. That's having. actually interesting because my second point uh, might be directly for Ken because it's uh, characters that have, like, a depth and a mind of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily in situation. It sounds like Ken is maybe looking a little bit more for uh, an established situation where things have already happened that are going to be very important going forward, which isn't necessarily what games like this do. Um, but I'm thinking in particular of Burning Wheel's life path. So when you create a Burning Wheel character, you uh, start out with basically what kind of society they were born into and then what things they've done with their life until the moment you start playing them. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing is this is all for character creation. Life paths aren't like classes that you keep on leveling up in and gaining more of. Right. They are only you describing what your character has done up until the moment you start playing them. Yeah, generally with life path games, because I also have life path games on my <laughs> list, uh, generally with life path games you do them, and the system is very much a point-by uh, kind of salady game where you don't have a restriction based on your life paths. They're just ways for you to accumulate skills and points and abilities and whatever. Like Traveler was mm-hmm. my primary game for this, yep. where the life path character creation is really a mini game. It's I do this, and then I'm going to roll some dice and see how well I did, and then I do this, and then I roll some dice, and I died in character creation. Isn't that insane? Uh, I love this kind of stuff. However, yeah. however, Rogue Trader uh, does life paths and has classes, which is a very weird way to do life paths. Interesting. Yeah, so you pick your class and your stats, and then everybody around the table, so it's kind of this combination, uh, you know, connects to the situation and life path system. Everybody around the table picks a where were you born area, which is kind of a generic thing, and then there's a second life path stage that you connect to, uh, kind of drawing a line through all of these boxes, and then a third stage and a fourth stage, all the way through seven. Mm -hmm. So you have like this seven stage history that hits a whole bunch of different worlds, gives you a bunch of augmentations to your class, and shows, oh yeah, I met you when I was growing up on the Hive world 20 years ago. Uh, interesting. Which is a really cool system, um, 
but like it doesn't do the mini game life paths that I like in Traveler, yeah. and it doesn't give you because it's a class system. It doesn't have the flexibility of Burning Wheels life paths. Yeah, Burning Wheel. There's definitely a bit of a mini game to life paths because there are uh, requirements on some of them, and they're all grouped into. Um, uh, there's overall settings, which is like you're a human or whatever, but there's, uh, I forget what the term for them is, but basically like uh, things settings. from the city. It's, it's, it's settings. settings. Yeah. Uh, I might have mixed up my terms there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you know that you want to get to uh, night, which means that you have to get to the noble setting, Yeah. but because it gave you a different starting thing, you started in the street, ur- as a street urchin, you know, how, how can I get the things that I need to be a knight? And you're generally in a uh, burning wheel playing with three-ish, three, four, five, somewhere in that range, uh, life paths, um, which are also kind of a measure of starting character strength, because each one of these things does tend to make you better. Uh, there's a bit of a counterbalance there, and they all take time. And, <laughs> and you're going to be old when yeah, you're Yeah, you look at your age, and that modifies some of your pools as well. Um, but there's, like, the overall... Finding your way through these life paths is really interesting, because there's enough of them, and they're interrelated enough with enough... Um, gates on them that you can't really have like a printed out graph of all your options because it would be a ridiculous mesh. Maybe you could come up with some computerized version that, you know, once you've selected two things, it trims down the rest of the tree or whatever. But, but it's a puzzle. It's a it's a puzzle game thing and you can get better at it. And I think yep. this is I think this is one of Luke's big things about the Burning Wheel system is he wants a game that you can get better at playing that is not just your character increasing stats or you happening to get more lucky on your dice or whatever, mm-hmm. but that you are legitimately better at using the system to get the outcomes that you want. Yes. Right? And Burning Wheel is so great for that kind of thing because you will be like, oh yeah, I want to get to... I want to cast spells. Okay, cool. I've got a three-life path character and I want to cast spells. What is that? How can I make this puzzle work? And the way you make the puzzle work with a perfectly, you know, very gamist attitude about the whole thing ends up with this really crazy wizard character that's got no money and may not even have shoes and started out life as an outcast and, you know, this huge background that you weren't necessarily thinking about when you were making the puzzle work. But that once you're done with the puzzle, now injects this crazy situation. Yeah, it's interesting because it's both the mechanical puzzle of being better about figuring out ways to get the thing you want, but it's also, solving that puzzle comes with fictional elements that, uh, assuming you have, anybody at the table has any interest in actually playing a role-playing game and not just looking at numbers, mm-hmm. it gives you a lot of ton, a ton of stuff to hook into. My my first Burning Wheel character was a, a grave digger who was forced to fight in a war, became a prisoner of war, and then uh, became like a, a rabble-rousing revolutionary, basically. You know, he uh, this was post-Arthurian England, and he decided that uh, Arthur was the last good king. There, there would never be another one. And so he was kind of a anarcho-socialist almost. <laughs> uh, you know, not, not quite that on the nose. But uh, the the I don't forget how I even chose those life paths. I think I just chose things that looked cool. And by the end of it, that character was super memorable. Uh, especially because he was the... He had the... Thanks to these life paths and the way that I... Um, spent the things that came out of them and a few of them dictated traits. Mm-hmm. He had this weird mixture of being like this big burly guy who could also get people really riled up with speeches and everything. Uh, 
combined with a few great rolls, and that game was rolling, no problem. I, and there's something here that loses a little bit when you scale it down even a little. Uh, mm-hmm. So the um, Bernie Wheel adjacent games of uh, Free Market, Torchbearer, and Mouse Guard, um, all of them have elements of this. Uh, they have some amount of um, answering questions about your background to establish things that feed back into your character. Sure. But when it's no longer kind of the big puzzle with all the interconnections and the uh, the variety of ways through it, um, it, it doesn't do as much for me. So for instance, in Torchbearer, um, you uh, are asked about like your... Um, connections with people, you know, do you have any friends at all? Uh, if not, you get one enemy and not very good stuff happens. Uh, you know, do you still talk with your parents, stuff like that? Just everybody's answering those. It ends up feeling a lot different than Life Paths where... Where the answer to one question dramatically affects the answer to the other question. Yeah, you know, the, uh, there are a few of those kind of, you know, answer these three things in order questions for certain parts of uh, burning wheel, but the life path system is all very open ended. You know, I've I've decided that I want to get spell casting somehow, so I need to hit one of these three, mm-hmm. and then I work backwards from that and figure out all these things. And by the time we all look up from choosing our life paths, uh, we have such different things to talk about than all of us answering. Uh, you know, who, uh, what your parents do? Totally. Um, and that, that's not a bad thing. There, there's a. a level of complexity there because I think this all this stuff we're talking about the characters then have to be somewhat resilient if you're going to put that much effort into creating them yeah I think I think I think there's a bunch of really important things about life paths there's there's a lot of that there's also the uh, your choices in life paths make sense like the uh, dread gears of Duke Vulku or whatever the the, the non horror specific dread does a question-based character generation, which is just answer a bunch of questions and then tell everybody, except for the GM, uh, DM doesn't tell anybody their answers, and then, you know, okay, now we have some backstory injected and we can go. But because your questions don't have any um, mechanical outcome, like, they're really all part of the conversation in the ongoing fiction, so in a sense they have a weird RPG-style mechanical outcome. But because you're not making decisions about them mechanically, you're just like, well, I guess whatever, this, and I guess this, because I don't know, whatever. Uh, which leads to a much different feel than a life path style generation where you say, oh yeah, well, I had to be a thief because it was my only way out of the slavery uh, mm-hmm. area, or I, you know, I ran away from royalty because it was the only way I could get to Hedge Wizard or whatever. Yep. And so you have these these relatively deep, uh, both fictional and mechanical rationale reasons for for making all these changes. The other great thing about Life Paths is that they they give you a whole bunch of setting right as you enter the game, uh, like the Rogue Trader uh, Life Pathy type stuff. Because it's basically just where you grew up and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it's not as deep as, oh, this is what I did, and I can tell you all the people I know, and now I can circle into that kind of stuff. But Rogue Trader is almost a Stars Without Number kind of game. It's yeah. all about kind of exploring the galaxy and, and going to these various places, and because the character generation ends up 
moving the characters through seven or eight planets, now you have a galaxy. That's the galaxy generation in Road Trader is, here's all the places that we already know about, right? So you're actually super tied to it instead of like Stars Without Number or Traveler where galaxy generation is, I roll a whole bunch of dice and here's the random setup, which is which is cool. Like I like procedural generation, but it you're actually tied to all of it in Rogue Trader. Well, I think that's also a difference of genre. Rogue Trader uh, has this idea that you're probably running. It's a bit more um, almost Star Wars esque in that like you're you're running around some known places and uh, not maybe as much about exploration. There is new planet generation in Rogue Trader. I mean, there is, but I'm, I'm saying that the the setup is gearing you towards. Sure. Uh, we you know we have these places that we know about, and we're gonna just kind of see them in motion for a while. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, Stars Without Number has a bit more of an opportunity for kind of the uh, almost Star Trek-esque, like, we, we set out to find new life and new civilizations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a, a genre change there. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And I mean, Rogue Trader only works because you can actually trade. Yeah. Uh, and so the, mo- the main reason you're finding any new planets anyways is to take their stuff so you can take them back to the worlds that you know about and give that stuff back. Exactly, and trading requires some, some known markets. Like yeah. Totally. Um, the interesting thing about life paths, well, one of many, because we've been talking about them for a while, <laughs> is that they end up with characters... Um, it, it, I mentioned this in my opening to this point, um, that have kind of a mind of their own. Like the Once you have a character who has that much going on, they... Uh, can be a step further from you, kind of. Yeah. Um, this was a, a ground-breaking moment for me playing Burning Wheel for the first time where I did something that was very much what I would do, and the GM asked, wait, don't you have a belief about that? And I totally did, <laughs> and realized that my character actually had stepped away from me. Like, I, my character had a mind of their own in a, a certain way, and I think that games with life paths or this kind of... Uh, establishing history mm-hmm. lend themselves to that more than trying to write that without that much background. I actually have a harder time writing beliefs in Torchbearer than I do in Burning Wheel because Burning Wheel, I know what my character has been through, and uh, in like a historic sense, and I can often find something there to hook into at least a couple of those beliefs. Whereas Torchbearer, I know a little bit about you know kind of where they picked up their skills and who they learned from and a few of their friends, but I don't have that sense of. How did they get to where they are now? Yeah, yeah. What who which what person is this? It's difficult to know without some play. And life paths are a way to play the game before you have to play the game. Yeah, yeah. Right? I've had burning wheel characters who at the beginning of play have more depth to them than characters that I've played for, for months of game time in other systems, which uh, it, that's a fine trade-off. There's also games where I don't care that my character has all the much depth. Yeah, the down the downside to life path character creation is I mean, character creation takes forever in yeah. a life path system. No matter what life path system you're using, it's going to be an hour, two hours to yeah. build characters. But it's also super satisfying. At yeah, least it's true. not two hours of like recomputing how much you can carry. <laughs> how many how many points do I need to put into this before I can use this ability? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think uh, that was also your second point. Life yeah, paths. totally. Okay, mini game life paths like Traveler. We we lined up. I I went Burning Wheel. You went Traveler. Well, so what's your my last one is completely random 
character generation. Drop this in your lap. You had nothing to do with it. Dungeon Crawl Classic style. Here's your five characters. Is that what you picked? That is exactly my third point. Yeah! Uh, so in case it's not obvious, Adam and I come into these preparing our own notes and then get to talk them over with each other, which occasionally <laughs> leads to... Uh, We're just in sync, man. Yeah, so randomness is uh, the other end of the scale, and it's just as enjoyable to me uh, in a lot of ways. It's so good. So so the two random games that I've got, I've got DCC, I've got On Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, DCC is your, your primary random game, I'm sure, because it yes. does it so well. Uh, DCC gives you half a dozen of these and gives them as little, as little creation as possible. You mm-hmm. have a couple of stats, one thing that says what you did, and maybe a word or two about what you happen to have on you, and that's it. Everything else comes out in play, yep. which is just beautiful. Um, and it works because because you can start so fast, and because you can just generate a whole bunch of these even before play starts, and then just hand them out, and it doesn't really matter, you end up building just enough backstory, uh, because the backstory is that first session, right? It's, it's like a prelude session, almost. Yeah. Yeah, and the the beauty here is that as a player, I, I think this actually hits what most people who have never played an RPG maybe expect more of the time, which is you sit down and it turns out you're playing an elf named whatever who carries a sword and uh, was born under the the sign of the snake or whatever. Like it's you, just in DCC, you're playing a gong farmer named Fred who has a pitchfork. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Yes, and I'll get back to Gong Farming <laughs> in particular because uh, I have strong feelings about Gong Farming. <laughs> but the great thing is you sit down and you're, uh, you start out with choices in play that uh, are less set in stone and long-lasting than character creation choices. So Burning Wheel as a first role-playing game would be pretty absolutely horrible because to create these great characters in these kind of mini-game character creations, you have to have some idea of what the victory condition of the game is. Um, You know, you can play suboptimal Burning Wheel characters and they're actually a lot of fun. Uh, (laughs) Really bad Burning Wheel characters are actually in some ways more entertaining than really good Burning Wheel characters. But just knowing what choices you're making is really tough in these kind of life path systems, whereas in DCC, the first choices you make are likely, you know, oh, who walks up to the strange crystalline thing, or, you know, there's uh, this weird plant in your way, what do you do about it? And Um, you can make those decisions like a normal person. Exactly. Whereas the burning wheel life path decision is a game decision. You know, you can make a narrative decision about it, you can say, you, but you, you basically have to be invested in what the the game's initial story is going to be before you can make life path decisions in Burning Wheel. Like, you have to say, I want to be this thing, mm-hmm. whereas in DCC, I can just hand you a stack of paper and be like, hey, you're all these people. Uh, pick which ones are going to live and die based on what you do right now. Yep, and, and the choices that you make they tie to your character sheet, but you can analyze them more directly. Uh, you know, first-time DCC players often say something like, well, which of my guys is best going to be able to to roll the rock out of the way or whatever? And you can say, okay, which one has the highest strength? And they can make that decision, and the all the numbers are spelled out. It's a more constrained 
space, which I think is actually part of the beauty of random characters, is mm-hmm. they're usually on some kind of random table or something like that, and you uh, you know the space of all existing characters, um, and it's easier then to both work within that space and to see what your options are, but also if you want to, to really force your way outside of that space, because now there is a defined space. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that's a common theme around pretty much everything we've talked about so far, is that they are establishing spaces for your character to work in more directly. Uh, like, the the range of what a character for this game can be is clearer than uh, a set of classes, but then every option beneath them. Um, yeah. Because, like, a D20 character is not constrained in the same way what character you can make, which sometimes leaves you a bit more floundering. Uh, yeah, the, the, the D&D, like an older D&D, D&D 3.5 maybe, or Pathfinder character creation, where it's an optimization puzzle, unlike the Burning Wheel Life Path puzzle. Mm-hmm. The optimization puzzle is you can start the game, you have built your character, and then you can realize a turner, you know, a, a session or two in, oh, I made the wrong decision... I should have taken this feed, I should have used this point here, I should have yeah. done whatever, and then my character would be straight up better. But in the life path system, a good at least a good life path system, like Burning Wheels, you've or built... Or Travelers, really. Or I Travelers. Mean. Well, yeah, Travelers, there's a difference between... So, well, Burning Wheels first. In, in the Burning Wheels system, it's not that you made the wrong decision, because even a suboptimal character, the character that has less skill points in something, is still a fun character to play, and you're not going to say oh, I did the wrong thing, I should have whatever, because you can just skill up there. But in Traveler's character creation, it's oh, it's a shame that I rolled that low when I did my Merchant Marine <laughs> thing, uh, but it's not your fault like, you didn't yeah. make a wrong decision, it's just you rolled low. It, it's the randomness plus life paths, which right. is a really fun area to be in. It's the game design aspect of randomness giving you an out. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my fault the characters that you gave me all had eights in everything in DCC, yep. and you know life sucks for me right now. But it's not my fault, and one of these characters is going to survive, and that's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there's a lot to be said here for uh, constraints be- breeding creati- creativity. When you uh, have those constraints you now can be both creative inside them and outside them. Like, they're a, a launching pad or a springboard to launch yourself off to to more ideas, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the the less constrained character creation can often uh, give you fewer ideas just because everything is possible. Um, and this is where I loop back to gong farming, because random tables uh, are a great way of communicating setting in a way that does not require... Um, like reading a long book, it, it you only get the bits of setting that are entering play, totally. which in this case involved me googling gong farming, <laughs> which turns out the <laughs> you're the person who hauls around poop uh, in a medieval city. Very important. Um, night soil being the polite term for it. So if you roll up a gong farmer in DCC, one of your starting items is a sack full of night soil, um, aka poop, uh, which is great because it's communicating a lot about who these characters are. They're kind of nobodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're rat catchers and gong farmers and uh, occasionally poets, because why not? Uh, the, The things that that tells you about the world are just fantastic. Random tables are 
probably my favorite form of setting, and bringing them into character creation is a great way to do that. Which is interesting. I'm going to uh, drop in a little bit of uh, pre-publication design, a, a game that we playtested, actually, at New Mexicon, um, something that I've been working on with a few friends, um, tentatively titled, perhaps, Frontier, but it sounds like that name may have just been taken, uh, which is kind of a, a game of... Uh, family histories in the American West, more likely the Southwest, because that's mm-hmm. where we're all from. Um, and, and trying to, even with the name Frontier, we're trying to bring a historical perspective to that, that uh, the the families there are not all white folks coming from the East to settle in the, the hard and land. There's, uh, the idea is you are people um, in a land that is changing, uh, and that can include natives, people, uh, Native Americans from the, the South in Mexico, um, Spanish up from the South, all, all kinds of options for who your characters are. But character creation is, is family-based. So you start out with a family name, you have a family uh, character sheet, basically, and you choo- you get a few people on to start with, and then character creation is kind of modeled on Oregon Trail. So you draw cards from a deck, and they give you basically random encounters that you resolve, and based on how you resolve them, your family and the people in it change. Uh, so by the time you get to wherever it is that everybody is settling down, the, the town that's going to play host to our kind of generational family dramas, you ha- you know how you got there, and your family has changed along the way, including like people dying and stuff. Uh, so it's that life path plus randomness, um, and we've playtested this all of once with uh, mostly random events come up with on the fly, uh, but it was really fun to see these families come together and get there, and that actually brings up um, kind of a bonus point that I want to throw in here on character creation is character creation that also creates a group yeah. is is really cool. Um, so Warhammer 3rd Edition did this, where you have like a, a party sheet. Blades in the Dark does this. Um, no Country for Old Cobalts does this. No Country for Old Cobalts. Um, all of these have you uh, not just creating your own character, but creating a shared thing, whether that's like your criminal enterprise, or your Cobalt uh, settlement, basically, or uh, your family... Um, though it works a little differently in Frontier. Uh, all these things are all of us creating something that we share as well as our own characters that are our own. So you're going to laugh, but uh, my bonus is the Quiet Year, mm-hmm. which is there's basically not character creation in Quiet Year. Um, the only thing you have is your group and the map. And so, I mean, you can talk about characters as they come up, as something gets named, but there's no true character creation like in uh, any of the other games that we're talking about. You basically just have, oh yeah, that's Jill, she came from here, and that's all we know about her, and now we draw the next card, no, it, you know, it, I'm going to hook this thing to Jill because we know she's in the in the setting, and that's, that's the extent, or something like Microscope, where I'm going to name them right now, and now they exist, and that's the, you know... That's that's it. That's the entirety of character creation is just the name. Yep. Uh, and it's only through play and through just the conversation around the table that you have any kind of information about this person. Well, this parallels uh, Fiasco. Right. Um, Fiasco, you, you kind of have a name and maybe a bit of an idea of who your character is, but it's the things that we uh, 
draw out of the the random pool of dice off of random tables, uh, adding pretty much all these things except life paths into one. Uh, Fiasco is really a masterclass in in setup um, and character creation because it, mm. it combines randomness and interconnection and uh, the kind of the thing that you're getting at here the um, setting based characters almost the mm-hmm. the things that you know about your character or where they fit into the current setting as opposed to a whole bunch of history about them um it's yeah just that intro portion to fiasco is a crazy game um because the last time i played it it was basically the first or second rpg for most of the people around the table and so you'd roll and i would tell people here's the here's the sheet pick a die pick where you want it to go on the sheet and then put it in front of anybody you want including yourself and People are like, well, you mean I can make this happen? I can, I can make this relationship true. I can. We, what's that? Can I make that a thing? Wait, if if they have, if they're married, I can choose sleeping together for a different group of two. Yeah, totally. You can do whatever. <laughs> uh, and it was just such an exciting, exciting kind of random table, but not quite generation of story. Yep. Oh man, it's such a great game. Yeah, and Fiasco gets into a little bit of the. Um, tied together choices of like best friends or paranoia where the things that I'm choosing because we're, we're uh, rolling a bunch of dice and using those dice to kind of buy things off a list but that means that if we're out of fives for example no five options can be chosen off of any of these random tables so there is a little bit of that interconnection of oh I know that you really wanted this option to be what you chose but I really want this one and I get to pick next mm-hmm. um, There's uh, and there there's the collaboration that I said was kind of uh, different in Paranoia and Best Friends where you're deliberately messing with people whereas Fiasco if you're doing that you're probably not doing it just to deny that person that choice uh, but that constraint breeds creativity like the, the fact that you can no longer choose the one that you thought now means that you're having to think in different ways and come up with new ideas so Best Friends is is it a turn-based thing where you're picking this stuff, or does everybody write down all of their stuff and then simultaneously tell everybody? Uh, basically, each of these questions is posed to the table. Who is um, who is the prettiest? Smarter, yeah. Who's the prettiest? Okay. Uh, and everybody like points is how we sure. did it. I, I forget exactly how it describes it in the text, but this is how I recall doing it at the table. Unfortunately, it's been a while since I've played it. Um, but we, we basically pointed at the person who, and then they counted, okay, how many people are pointing at you? That's your score in cool. pretty. Um, uh, it works really well, and it creates that tension right off the bat, because, uh, and it, it feeds into that mean girls kind of setup, because there's no... You're never allowed to say that you think you're the prettiest. Right. It's always who you think is prettier than you, uh, and so you're Which automatically sets up relationships, right? And insecurity. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a game about that insecurities breeding uh, horrible behavior, kind of, mm-hmm. um, and it it does that. Uh, there's no way to be secure with who you are as a person in Best Friends. Um, so uh, while so talking about Tenra as well. Um, and random character generation and random relationships and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Tenra has a lot of GM hand-holding 
to character creation. I hate most of Tenra character creation because it's a lot of point by, make a million decisions that are probably suboptimal, uh, and then exit out the other end with this crazy character that will take people a million years to understand. But one of the great things about it is the GM will show up to the table, because it tends to be a one-session game, and have a list of destinies that are basically GM-given beliefs. Mm -hmm. Your destiny is to destroy this thing. Your destiny is to save that thing. Your destiny is to whatever. Uh, And so you can start the game and immediately hand people these things during their prelude scene that say... Here's what you get to do this game, mm-hmm. or at least what you get to react to. Because if I give you the destiny to destroy it, it's a belief in the burning wheel sense where you can go against that and interesting stuff's going to happen. Yeah. And because of that and the, uh, the matrix rules that randomly generate relationships, I kind of want to just always play with pre-gens mm-hmm. in Tenra because that part of character creation is boring to me and painful. But then once you hit the table and get to do these relationships and beliefs, that's that's my biggest problem with burning wheel beliefs, um, in fact, is writing your own beliefs is very difficult. Um, it is <laughs> another one of those skills, like you talked about, mm-hmm. that you have to get good at. But it's hard, it's hard to understand when you've succeeded at writing a good belief. Yeah. Uh, when you've succeeded at doing your life path thing, you're like, I've succeeded because I am gifted and I can cast spells now. Or I'm, I've succeeded because I have enough faith to do this thing. Or I, you know, I am legitimately the prince because the GM approved that or whatever. And, and the other players. I love that some of the life paths <laughs> require everybody else saying, like, yeah, you can be the crown prince. Mm-hmm. But straight beliefs, it you're not going to know if that was a good belief until you're three or four sessions in, maybe? Or you have a fair amount of skill with the game and, and get kind of a sense of it. The, Luke has, has written some of this in like the um, the Adventure Burner for uh, Burning Bell Revised, um, but it is, it is definitely a bit more of an art than a, a science to get good beliefs, which I'm kind of okay with. Um, I've actually had a harder time doing it for Torchbearer, but for this upcoming uh, Twitch game that I'll be doing, uh, I believe that I have my first Torchbearer belief that I really love, which is uh, my character is um, basically uh, a creepy apprentice wizard that nobody really likes because he's kind of weird and <laughs> off. Um, and he, As wizards should be. Yeah, uh, so the rest of his wizard school like went off on a, a field trip somewhere and just forgot about him. Uh, and so That's he awesome. kind of fell in with adventures because he, he wants to find friends. So he has a belief about... Um, how did I phrase it? I believe it's... Uh, if I can prove my worth to these people, maybe I'll find real friends, uh, or I can find real friends. I think because it, it should be something that you know he believes he can do. Totally. Uh, so he he's just like this poor kind of creepy goth kid who can actually cast magic, who really just wants some good friends. Um, I think it's the first time I have a torchbearer belief that I'm really excited to play. <laughs> well, it's, so so in you know RPGs are are kind of this cross uh, between. Playing a you know playing a war game in a way, but also writing a non uh, writing a fiction uh, a fictional novel or a fictional short story, and in that cross section you have a lot of pieces of the first 
trying to make interesting strategic and tactical decisions, and a lot of interesting pieces of the second, which is trying to make sure really cool stuff is going on that people are interested in where it's going to go, and asking questions and leaving them unanswered. And because it's those cross-sections, we have a lot of, of games that are really good at the former, where you're building uh, a whole bunch of options into character creation that change what you're going to be able to do later. But it's really, really hard to do the latter because it's it's really hard to write stories. Yeah. Um, and and character and plot and setting a theme are kind of the core pieces to story. And if you can't get a really good character that's tied to a really good plot and has a lot of the really good setting and theme built into it, you're just not going to have a very good story, and maybe maybe you'll have a good war game, but yeah. And I think that uh, great games manage to work with those as strengths, um, either by making it easy to create those elements or providing them. Um, so an example here that uh, I just came up with now, it hadn't even been on my list, is um, the Mountain Witch, which is a game that does not get nearly as much attention as it should. It, it's a little uh, before um, I think a lot of games by similar authors kind of hit the the mainstream, but it's this uh, game where you are all um, samurai, basically, headed up the mountain to uh, kill the witch that lives there. But you all have these uh, relationships to each other or or hidden agendas, kind of, that uh, are going to pull you in different ways and likely it turns into kind of a blood opera where because somebody is, is... probably working for the witch uh there's there's always things that are going to come together and come out of that and part of why characters in the mountain witch are so great is because of this um there there's always kind of the same setting and uh situation behind it that helps every it it helps take care of those elements that you're just talking about there there is so much to create but the the general map of the story is kind of already there for you and so creating characters that that flow into that is a lot easier um oh i need to go back and and play that game again uh, because people pointed it out as uh, being similar to the last couple episodes of uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, instead of the Mountain Witch, it's the, the Mountain White Walker or whatever and you're, you're headed out beyond the wall, your little group of seven samurai or whatever. Make uh, that hack. Yeah. I, it's one of those super hackable games, kind of like uh, Dogs in the Vineyard where there's a very clear... Um, situation and setting to them but because they're so clear they're also really easy to hack into adjacent things blades in the dark as well kind of does this like you're your criminal enterprise in this this steampunky kind of city um but then you take that to you transport those constraints to a different setting and they still work really well so you know uh dogs in the vineyard samurai in the vineyard uh there's Star Trek versions of it. I've always wanted to do an X-Files version of it. There, Once you have these constraints, it's really easy to start seeing the edges of other things that fit in that same piece, kind of. <laughs> so I, I think that brings us around to, to time to recap. It'll be a very short recap because we overlapped on so many things. Yeah, yeah. We've got we've got our uh, our connect mechanically to the group situation type stuff, and you, you went much more the numbers end and I went much more the story end but definitely mechanical on both sides either way connecting the characters to each other and to the situation Mm -hmm. Uh, life paths and depth of their own creating characters that that have a a history and have uh, something more to them than the stats that you came up with right now 
and then I'm going to hand you six random characters and good luck. Yeah, roll roll on this table and tell me who your character is. Uh, I think all these are really successful ways of creating characters, and I'm, I'm glad we actually talked it over, because as we were going through this, I found all these ways that these things actually overlap in games that I like. They're not distinct things that a game is going to choose one of these, and that's its way of making good characters. They're all these tools that you can mix together in, you know, Traveler really is both random and life paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fiasco is randomness and character connections. There, there's all these things that overlap, and bringing them together to work the right way for the game that you're playing is... Is huge, and I think that's actually why these things aren't necessarily as portable as just dropping them into another game. I know people will do like fiasco setups and then play those characters in a D and D game and stuff, which certainly can work. But I think there's there's deeper thought into why these things work for the games they do mm-hmm. uh, that that goes in there. That you can't just say I'm going to create a D twenty character through life paths and actually still have it work out the same. Yeah, I do think though they share. They share a couple of really important things. Um, the the biggest one that comes to mind is that they all get you to the situation as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, a lot of the generation systems that I that I'm not a huge fan of, you spend a lot of time in this its own game form of I want to pick these things and then pick these things and then pick these things and none of that is really related to the situation or my relationships. It's just you know, how do I optimize this machine? Mm-hmm. And then once you leave that optimization puzzle, it's like you're done deck building in Magic the Gathering, and now I'm going to play some games. But those are very different games. Like, the yeah. deck building thing is its own thing, and then you bring that to the game, and that's its own thing. And now, what if I only want to play one of those things? I, uh... Well, and I think your, your Magic analogy there is really interesting because uh, deck building varies a lot depending on what format you're playing. Uh, Deck building in draft is a a dramatically different even process because your card pool is coming from a a mini game of its own, whereas deck building in uh, like sealed or in like just a a modern format uh, are all very different things that you have to consider how the constraints you operate under and then also how you build for those. And then something like Commander, where you have different you know, card constraints for your, your deck. Um, yeah, there's something to be said there for the way RPGs kind of approach the same thing. You know, even I, I'd be interested to see uh, somebody like come up with a whole bunch of kind of D20 genres and adapt character creation to each of them um, using like magic drafts as kind of a, a, a model. Like uh, in some ways DCC already did this because it is a little D20-ish. It's kind of like D20, the random character creation edition uh, where it's they both decided what play looks like and chose character creation that matches with it. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think it, what you want with character creation is something that lets you get immersed in the situation as quickly as possible and immersed in your relationships with other people and and kind of inextricably tied to everything in the game and then just launch. I, I tend to agree that I'm going to say quick as possible is an important thing there because stuff like Burning Wheel where it can take an entire session to create characters I still feel is... You're still... As, as soon as you start, you're tied to the situation though. Sure. I, I guess that's a good point. The tie to the, the situation can happen while we're still creating characters, mm-hmm. uh, and that works really well. And there is still Burning Wheel situation creation is kind of its own <laughs> it's thing. It's its own thing, uh, potentially before character generation even starts, yeah. Yeah, and, and makes a lot of difference. A, a good Burning Wheel situation changes the game dramatically. 
Uh, but that's it for our 24th question. How do we build great characters? Another question is Sage Latour and Adam Blinkensop. You can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast or by searching for Another Question on Google Plus or Facebook. Our website, anotherquestion.com, has all our old episodes plus links to all the games we mentioned in each episode and other bonus material. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a question, send, uh, leave us a review on iTunes, or share this episode. Thanks.